I'm Jeff Eichler. And I'm Kirsten Rickert. And we are the hosts of the Getting Unstuck podcast, a part of the Education Podcast Network. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Hey, welcome back. Steve here. And today I'm talking with Judith Finlayson. She is a best-selling author who's written books on a variety of subjects from personal well-being and women's history to food and nutrition. A former national newspaper columnist for The Globe and Mail, magazine journalist, and board member of various organizations focusing on legal, medical, and women's issues. She is also the author of over a dozen cookbooks. Today we're focused on her latest book, You Are What Your Grandparents Ate, What You Need to Know About Nutrition, experience, epigenetics, and the origins of chronic disease. Lots to learn today. Thanks for listening. By the way, it would be awesome if you shared, reviewed, and subscribed. Enjoy. Hey, Teaching Learning Leading K-12 has a sponsor, Boone's Titanium Rings. You can find them at www.boonerings.com. And I can't say enough about their rings because I actually am a customer and I wear one. Uh, that's right. My wedding band uh, that I'd had over 34 years had uh, developed some issues over the years where it had to keep fixing it around the, um, the underside of the ring because uh, it kept breaking and eventually a chunk broke off and I couldn't fix it any longer. So um, went to uh, Boone's Rings and uh, I uh, chose out a uh, personalized laser engraved ring that uh, has these real cool pistons and stars on it and uh, there's all kinds of styles that you can use but that's the ring that I have and I don't think this one's ever going to break <laughs> so uh, which is good stuff now they got lots of choices you can choose from and uh, I, I, everything from colorful rings to the laser engraved you've got different choices of uh, inlays like these d different plastics and uh, meteorite and which is really cool by the way the meteorite one just <laughs> i think is awesome and then you have these other types of uh, materials that they use like wood also um as well as they make other uh, not just rings they also make an assortment of earrings and uh, um, little tools and uh, and different items like that but um, it'd be really cool if you went and uh, checked them out at uh, boonrings.com and uh, just a note i have an affiliate relationship with them and uh, so if you use my coupon code which is all caps t l l k and then the number 12 when you go to check out you'll get 10% off and teaching learning leading k12 We'll earn a commission. So uh, check them out. You, you need to look at some rings, don't you? I love mine. I think you'll love yours. You are listening to Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12, a podcast for educators, helping you help kids achieve their dreams. Now here's Steve with this week's show. You are what your grandparents ate. What you need to know about nutrition, experience, epigenetics, and the origins of chronic disease takes conventional wisdom about the origins of chronic disease and turns it upside down. Rooted in the work of the late epidemiologist, Dr. David Barker, it highlights the exciting research showing that heredity involves much more than the genes your parents passed on to you. Thanks to the relatively new science of epigenetics, we now know that the experiences of previous generations may show up in your health and well-being. Many of the risks for chronic diseases, including obesity, type 2 diabetes, high blood pressure, heart disease, and dementia, can be traced back to your first 1,000 days of existence from the moment you were conceived. 
The roots of these vulnerabilities may extend back even further to experiences your parents and grandparents had, and perhaps even beyond. Similarly, what happens to you will affect your children and grandchildren. That's why it's so important to make good dietary choices, get a suitable amount of exercise, and be cautious about exposure to toxins. Positive lifestyle changes have been shown to spark epigenetic adjustments that can lead to better health, not only for yourself, your offspring, and their children, but also for generations to come. Judith Finlayson is a best-selling author who has written books on a variety of subjects from personal well-being and women's history to food and nutrition. A former national newspaper columnist for The Globe and Mail, magazine journalist, and board member of various organizations focusing on legal, medical, and women's issues, she is also the author of over a dozen cookbooks. Judith lives in Toronto, Canada. Judith, thanks for joining me today and say hi to everyone. Thank you for having me. I'm very happy to be here. Well, I'm glad you're here. And uh, let's start by talking about you as a writer. You've written, you've written a lot, and I want to focus on the cookbooks right now. You've written several books on healthy foods. What got you started as a writer, and why did you lean towards better health through looking at what you eat? Well, um, I, I have, I've always been a writer. That's what I am. I'm a journalist and researcher, uh, and I've always worked in areas that interest me. Food was always my passion and my hobby. I love to cook, so I used to spend, you know, mornings doing heavy-duty research and writing and whatever, and I love to come down at the end of the day and just cook dinner. So um, I had a, a kind of, you know, 20 years or so of, of a history of really being a, a foodie, I guess is what you would call me, a uh, cook and an eater, and um, just by happenstance, uh, I was asked to write a cookbook. And I wrote that cookbook, and that cookbook did very well. So I thought at that point, hmm, this might be time for a career change. Uh, because I loved doing it. It was different. It was exciting. It was new. And I like newness. I like doing things that are different. So that launched my cookbook career. Um, it didn't take too long for me to become very interested in the whole idea of, of nutrition as part of food and how you could use food to really prevent disease. And that research was just starting to develop around the year 2000. Those were very, what they called associative studies. Um, so they would say, you know, the one I remember reading about most about that time was cruciferous vegetables and cancer. Uh, and if you ate more, you know, broccoli, Brussels sprouts, those kinds of things, um, you were less likely to develop certain types of cancer. So I got very interested in that. Um, in those days, they were epidemiological studies where large kinds of groups of people were studied and associations were determined. Um, what happened around the year 2000 was that the science of epigenetics started coming to the fore. And that information began to give us insight into how that happened. So it could show things like if you ate cruciferous vegetables, they produced a substance called sophorophane, 
which um, limited, uh, had an effect on, on cancer cells. Um, it prevented some from developing and so on. So, you know, the rest, as I say, somebody introduced me to the work of David Barker, and that set me off on a whole other avenue of research and um, interest, which resulted in You Are What Your Grandparents Ate. Very cool. So, so since you've given me a good, a good segue into that, uh, let's shift to, to your book. It, it, you Are What Your Grandparents Ate, What You Need to Know About Nutrition, Experience, Epigenetics, and the Origins of Chronic Disease. And in the beginning of your book, like you just said a second ago, it, you introduced the reader to the work of Dr. David Barker. Could you explain epidemiology and the connection? And I mean, what do you think? Well, epidemiologists are scientists that look at disease patterns in large groups of people. And uh, so they're the people who could, who would sh could see, for instance, that people who ate more cruciferous vegetables were less likely to develop cancer. David Barker was a British epidemiologist, and in the 1970s, he was working on um, a big overview called the Atlas of Mortality about health in Britain and that was documenting various disease patterns in Britain. He um, began to see that heart disease was aligned with the poorest areas of the country. And this may not seem all that shocking at this point, but in the 1970s, heart disease was thought to be a disease of affluence. It was linked with eating too much meat, and um, it, was, it was men. Men were very affluent men, were ones who developed most, most heart disease, it was thought. But his studies were showing that heart disease was more prevalent in the poorest um, areas of the country. Um, he continued with that research, he began to suspect that what he was seeing, he was also seeing things like the highest rates of stroke 70 years later could be linked with the highest rates of infant and maternal, maternal mortality 70 years previous. All of this information was giving him a sense that there was something that was happening during pregnancy that was responsible for all of this, but he didn't have any documentation, any data that could support that. So he was looking around for birth records. Um, he ended up finding, uh, just to go back around, the turn of the 20th century, around 1911 was when she was really working, um, the British government was, became very concerned about the health of the British population. They decided to put in a program of health visitors with, um, you know, women who are having babies and so on. And, that, and in the county of Hertfordshire, it was headed up by a woman named E. 
uh, Margaret Bernstein, uh, Burnside, who was, was quite a formidable personality. And she organized a team of midwives and health visitors who would go and visit pregnant women uh, when, when they were pregnant, when they gave birth, and follow the babies up to the first birthday. Um, one of the really wonderful images I, I think of when I think of E. Margaret, as she liked to be called, she rode all over the county on her bicycle and one year uh, visiting her, her, her subjects. And uh, one year clocked something like 3,000 miles on her bicycle. But riding her bicycle and organizing her team of health visitors, she collected the information that gave David Barker what he needed to make this connection. The interesting story, another interesting aspect of it is that initially the um, government was not going to allow him to look at these records because they contained deeply personal information. Uh, he, like many other children during the Second World War, had been um, evacuated to the country, he and his mother, and his sister was actually born in the county and her records were part of the records that E. Margaret Burnside had organized and because of that he got access to those records uh, because he had a family connection. Those using those records, he was able to develop what is now known as the Barker Hypothesis, or was initially known as the Barker Hypothesis, which was published in the Lancet, a uh, prominent uh, medical journal, in 1986. And he showed the connection between low birth weight 5.5 pounds and less, and the propensity for developing heart disease later in life. Low birth weight, as you may know, is linked with things like poor nutrition, like chronic stress, which establishes the link with poverty. Um, you may also be interested to know that the United States has the highest rate of maternal mortality of any Western country, and that is linked with poverty and racialized communities. Um, and low birth weight babies are very prevalent in this. The Barker hypothesis kind of hung out there for a number of years as a sort of radical notion until about 2000 when it began to be accepted by the medical establishment around the world uh, and Dr. Barker was invited to speak to the National Institutes of Health. Um, low birth weight, 5.5 pounds or less, is now recognized universally as a marker for the development of chronic illness. And that's a wide range of chronic illnesses, uh, diabetes, obesity, heart disease. Um, it's because changes 
that happened during uh, fetal development uh, affect the metabolism among other systems and predispose people who have experienced things like poor nutrition, like chronic stress, as uh, while they were in the womb, um, to chronic illness. Um, I can, Dr. Barker was kind of, he wasn't the only person who was looking at these kinds of things. Um, there was another epidemiologist named Lars Bergen, uh, who in Sweden uh, decided to study the area that he had grew up in, and he found that young boys who ate too much around the time of puberty were more likely to have grandsons that died young. He too had difficulty getting his initial research published because even though his statistics were sound, his data was sound. People just didn't believe it initially. And uh, he also found that women who lived through a period of famine when they were pregnant significantly increased the possibility that their granddaughters would die earlier than normal. Um, these and many other examples got people very interested in how what happened at certain stages of reproduction influence long-term health. And as I said, when the science of epigenetics began to have an influence, it answered some of the questions surrounding this phenomenon. Um, basically, what you need to know is that genes are fixed but how they express themselves isn't. So we are born with our genome, but gene expression is influenced by the environment and a key influence on how your genes express themselves is nutrition. Environmental impacts like poor nutrition leave marks on cells known as epigenetic modifications. These modifications function like a kind of biological memory that is passed on through the generations via reproductive cells on the mother's egg and the father's sperm. Remember a female baby, and we haven't gotten into this yet, but a female baby is born with all of her eggs. So once you realize that, you realize that whatever happens to a woman that it, who is pregnant is likely to have an impact on her, her daughter because those eggs are, have formed while she was still a fetus. And so the air that, that, that the mother breathes, the food that she eats, the stress that she experiences, leave what are called epigenetic, epigenetic modifications that function like a kind of biological memory. Uh, the father's sperm uh, similarly uh, has an effect on, on, on the fetus and on the lifetime health, health of that, uh, that child. Uh, with male sperm cells, it's different. They form during puberty. 
And that means a boy's experiences around the age of nine or 10 can influence the quality of his sperm throughout life. So Lars Bergen, who was the Swedish epidemiologist who found that boys who ate too much around the time of puberty were likely to have grandsons that died young. For other studies, he teamed up with a British geneticist named uh, Marcus Pembry, and they did studies on, uh, for instance, boys smoking around the time of puberty. And those studies showed that the children, the sons of those boys, were more likely to be obese and to have metabolic disorders. So uh, where we are is that uh, for sure we should be improving the diet of pregnant females uh, because we can reverse the process of disease development by changing the expression of certain genes. And um, that we should encourage young boys um, to avoid toxic exposures, especially around the age of nine or 10, around puberty. Gotcha. The, so like when, and, and the, Maybe something like you're talking about a toxic exposure at eight or nine with boys would be like, what's one thing? Well, cigarette smoking. Gotcha. That's the one that they, that's the one that, that they did the studies on. So, uh, I mean, I'm, we wouldn't recommend that anybody smokes ever, but for sure, uh, if you're a male, not around the time that your um, sperm cells are forming around the age of, of, of puberty. Gotcha. You know, toward the end of chapter two in uh, in your book, the uh, you are what your grandparents ate. The uh, you comment, but the science has advanced far enough to provide some clear goalposts. Nurturing your genes with nutritious food and a healthy lifestyle can go a long way towards reducing your risk of developing chronic disease and the risk for your descendants too. Can we just, can we talk just a little bit more about this because you've introduced it with this epigenetics is so can can you just kind of kind of give us a little bit of summation here? Well, one of, let's, so um, let's, with, 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 the, with the intergenerational um, uh, heritage, um, it's called epigenetic inheritance. Uh, the kind of early main study is the agouti mouse study. And uh, agouti mice, uh, were mice that were bred to be very beautiful. They're pet mice. Their popularity began in the Victorian era. And I tell some stories about those beautiful little mice in the book. Um, but the, the problem was that the more beautiful they got, they were breeding them for this beautiful red kind of coat. Um, the, 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 the unhealthier they became. And of course, people didn't know that this had, that genes had an impact in the, when they were doing this back in the Victoria, Victorian era. Um, by the time epigenetics came uh, into the, 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 the ring, uh, we were beginning to get a sense um, of epigenetic changes and that we could adjust um, 
uh, nutrients to improve gene expression. So a group of scientists looked at these agouti mice and gave pregnant females a little cocktail of nutrients, um, B vitamins, choline, one or two other things, uh, who, were, who were very sickly. These, these, these pregnant females were very ill, uh, were sickly and were, were, were programmed to continue the, the um, pattern of breeding uh, sickly offspring. And with this cocktail of nutrients, uh, they found not only that the females gave health, gave birth to healthy offspring, um, but that the offspring, without further supplementation for two generations, gave birth to healthy offspring. So they were giving birth to healthy. Uh, sons and daughters, and then healthy grandchildren. Um, so that showed that you could, that the nutrients that they gave them were known to um, positively affect an epigenetic process known as DNA methylation. And DNA methylation is the most studied of the epigenetic processes. And um, information on, I mean, you're now seeing um, really almost in the mainstream um, diets to improve methylation, that kind of thing going on. So um, that was the beginning of more and more studies which are showing that you can positively change gene expression through things like good nutrition, exercise is another one, um, things like uh, a little more cutting edge, but they're starting, they're starting the research and the results are very positive. Mind-body practices like yoga, mindfulness, mindfulness medication, and meditation and so on are uh, really also showing great benefit as epigenetic modifiers. Very cool. So there's a lot at play here that uh, we, uh, more than just making the choice of uh, saying I, I shouldn't have that bag of pork rinds today <laughs> um, and make another choice and then impact uh, everyone down the road. So yeah, it's good stuff. Yeah, I, I got to get you there because as I progress through your book, I mean, there's just, I could have spent, I could have spent this whole time to talk with you on the first chapter alone and on each chapter subsequently. So we could have, <laughs> we could have uh, several weeks together here, but the, uh, um, you know, as we progress through there, one of the things that hit me was something that you called the 100 year effect. Could you talk about that? Well, the 100-year effect uh, is, comes back to the idea of the female eggs. So if you think about it, the egg that formed you was in your mother's womb when she was pregnant, when your grandmother was pregnant with you. 
So everything that your grandmother experienced, and particularly what she ate, had an impact on your mother on that egg that made you. So that's the direct transmission of the 100-year effect from your grandmother to you. Now, as we also know, uh, your grandfather's sperm played a role too in, in, in how how you developed because you were both a combination of of your of the male sperm and the female egg uh i just saw and i don't i haven't read the study yet but something came in on my um i subscribed to a number of medical news things this morning uh about a study they have known for a long time that men over 45 who have children uh, are more likely, their children are more likely to be susceptible to developing autis autistic, autism spectrum disorder. Uh, I, just a study came in this morning that really uh, linked, let me just see if I can find it. Uh, yeah, uh, it links biomarkers and sperm to a child's autism status with 90% accuracy. Um, so it, it was, I believe, uh, related to um, DNA methylation and it identified 805 potential bio biomarkers and they could predict whether or not the men um, had fathered uh, children with autism spectrum disorder to an accuracy rate of around 90%. So, you know, the work of Lars Bergam, the Swedish epidemiologist uh, I spoke about, was really showing grandfathers having an impact on their grandchildren. Uh, so that's two generations later. Um, and so with the females, it's through the, the, the eggs and the egg development. So that's the 100-year effect. Gotcha. That's, it's kind of... It's, <laughs> it's hard to get your head around. I, I agree. It, it's... It, it really is, and especially because I mean the concept I understand, but the uh, but the whole thing I mean it sounds like the basis for a science fiction novel. Um, they if I could go back in time and stop my grandfather from eating that thing, the whatever that was, you know. But you know, it's uh, just like the the whole concept. Like I know one of the things that's pop uh, you know, became popular there for a little bit were for uh, researchers to talk about uh, um, the idea that our foods today that may have similar names may not be as the same thing as what they had when our grand, you know, when my grandparents were, I'm in my late fifties, you know, my, my grandparents on either side were, we're talking about uh, born in the early 1900s and uh, um, went through the uh, world war one, world war two, great depression, not in that order, world war one, <laughs> great depression, world war two and uh, Korean war. And so in the, 
those ages in there where like my mother and my, my father were, um, were conceived and such, which this is a strange topic for me to be talking about. <laughs> I hear my father's voice. None of your business, young man. Anyway, <laughs> um, but the, uh, you know, it just, the differences in the things that they might have eaten, which, you know, there's the lack of fast food, um, might've been helpful. <laughs> um, oh, yeah, for sure. It was. The lack of chemicals too, that, that we tend to put in things today. Absolutely. Um, if there, you know, there are a number of key messages in the book. Uh, but one of them is certainly, uh, if you want to be healthy, avoid processed foods. There are all kinds of stories in there about uh, a lot of the things that it does to you, um, not the least of which is, uh, and we haven't touched on the topic of the microbiome, which is a favorite subject of mine, um, it, really the, the, the bacteria that live in your gut have a profound influence on your health, and you want to um, encourage the growth of the friendly bacteria as much as possible and discourage the growth of um, the unfriendly ones. Uh, and you wanna have a diverse mix of bacteria in your, in your gut. And you do that by eating a healthy diet of whole foods. You really can't go wrong. I mean, we've been talking about a lot of stuff that almost qualifies as rocket science here. Uh, but, but the solution is very simple, common sense. Eat a diet of whole, real foods, preferably organic. Um, you know, Michael Pollan, the, the, the writer, said it kind of best, would eat food not too much, uh, mostly plants. Uh, and that really, that really kind of sums it up. Um, there are some studies in the book that I quote, which look at the effect. Uh, one of the, micro, the scientists in England, British scientists, who was looking at the microbiome, uh, his son was thrilled. I can't remember whether the, the son probably suggested it, that he could go on a diet of just eating processed foods from like McDonald's for 10 days or something. And uh, his father agreed to it and then uh, measured uh, his, through checking stool samples every day, measured the ratios of beneficial and friendly bacteria, uh, uh, unfriendly bacteria in, in his gut. And he couldn't believe how quickly the quality of his son's bi microbiome declined from a diet of um, fast food. Uh, like within a day or two, and by the 10th day, the, the kid was really feeling listless and unhappy and, and saying, you know, thanks, Dad, but, you know, I'm really happy to get back to some real nutritious foods. <laughs> I'm not sure I'd recommend anything that drastic in terms of, of getting your, your kids on a healthy eating pattern, but, you know, it's, it's kind of something to, to, to consider. Uh, but um, there are many, many uh, studies that just show how bad processed food is for you uh, for all kinds of reasons, and it negatively affects gene expression in addition to killing off a lot of friendly bacteria in your gut. 
Um, so just, you know, the Mediterranean diet, I, I hate to sound like a, a broken record, but it's an easy one to come back to because it's been studied so much and it's been studied in so many different ways. And it's, it's shown that it can do things like building resiliency, uh, that it changes gene expression in a positive way. Uh, it improves the gut microbiome. So, you know, and that's basically whole foods. Gotcha. That's, you know, it, and that's just, you know, that's huge to hear because it is, you know, kind of our work worlds and our lives tend to be fast, fast paced, got to get stuff done. And so it lends us to, it encourages us to do things that, um, mean that we take intake of something that's going to be quicker to take in instead of preparing foods of our own in our kitchens and so forth. I mean, uh, yeah, what, would you, what would you say to someone who just says, I just don't have time? Well, I, I guess I would say uh, it depends on what you mean by time. There are a lot of, of, of healthy food options that are very quick, like eating an apple, pack an apple in your lunch, uh, pack some celery sticks uh, and, or carrot sticks or whatever with some cheese. Uh, you know, I made a batch of pimento cheese about a week ago, which is not hard to make. It's very delicious. It keeps for days and days in the fridge. You know, put a little container of that in a bag with some celery sticks and you actually have a fairly nutritious lunch. Uh, and you don't have to line up at the takeout place to get, you know, uh, unhealthy fast food. So when, when you're, you're saying it's fast, you, you, you also may not be factoring in things like having to line up, um, you know, like paying your bill, all of which adds time to, time to doing it. So there are lots of, of, of fast options that are very healthy. That's a good point. That's uh, and you know, just throw it back at me, by the way. Because <laughs> you are right, especially in this COVID world that we're in. You had the fast food places aren't as fast because they're making you stand in the stay in those lines around their buildings. So, yeah, you're sitting there that whole time. You probably could have had the pimento cheese on the major pimento cheese and put it on the uh, on the celery. So, I appreciate that. And I, you know, and, and Judith, there's so many awesome areas that I'd love to get into. Um, you know, everything from uh, you know, the idea of the, the impact that stress has on our, our thoughts about nutrition, especially with um, between kids and adults. Um, the, uh, the ideas of, uh, you know, what actually is happening to us and our, our metabolism, our, our bodies and our brains and the different parts is where, you know, what's called aging. And, you know, just there's, there's so much here. And I, I want to make sure the listeners understand that this, you have these sections that go into each of these parts um, and, in wonderful um, detail. And it's, uh, it's it just, it really helped you understand a lot about what's going on with us. So uh, kudos to you on, on what's, what's come together in your book. It's, it's easy to read and understand as you move forward. Thank you. I appreciate that. But, you know, one of the things that, uh, um, you know, that I'd like to, you know, we're getting closer to finishing here. And uh, you know, one of the things that I, th Thinks funny uh, is that we've talked about this just a little bit, but you gotta you gotta do a little bit for me here. Give give us some thoughts about 
can you give us some specifics about something that would be good to eat besides the apple and the celery with the, <laughs> the pimento <laughs> cheese? Can't go back to those two. Well, start, let's start with breakfast because breakfast is an easy one. And breakfast, if you're opening that bag of cereal, uh, prepared cereal or a box, you should take a look at what's in it you know, before you eat it because it's likely to be really loaded with sugar. Um, New York Times did an assessment a number of years ago on Cheerios and how it had evolved in the number of years since it had been originally developed uh, and the various variations and really they just loaded them up with sugar, sugar, sugar and, and sugar is not great for you um, as we know. But a simple, uh, uh, you know, a simple solution, a, a good breakfast, uh, and there are a number of studies that show that if you start off with a good breakfast, um, you, it has many health benefits. So instead of having some of that ready-made cereal, why not have a good whole grain cereal, like hot oatmeal? I love hot oatmeal. Um, if you think it takes too long to make, it takes about 15 minutes to make the real old-fashioned oats on top of the stove. If you think that takes too long, there are various, you know, go on the internet for recipes because they're, they're really out there. Uh, put it in your slow cooker and make a, how about making a big batch? Make three or four servings. Put it in your slow cooker before you go to bed. When you wake up in the morning, it's done. Uh, you can have a serving if you're, if you're living on your own uh, and put the rest in the fridge and then just warm it up in the microwave for a couple of days, but you have it prepared. Whole grains are one of the healthiest things that you can eat. Um, you know, there are many, 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 many studies uh, showing the health benefits of eating whole grains. You're starting off with a healthy breakfast that keeps you going until lunchtime. Um, if you go back to whole grains, if you don't like oatmeal, there are a number of other uh, whole grains. And whole grains are so, so not all whole grains, not all whole grains contain gluten, if you're worried about gluten. Uh, there are a number of gluten-free whole grains that take about 15 minutes to cook. I discovered millet a number of years ago, and I absolutely love it. Uh, quinoa is another one. Um, you know, you put them in the, the pot with some water, bring it to a boil. While you're making your coffee, it can be cooking. Um, and, you've, you know, you've just got an incredibly nutritious um, uh, breakfast. Uh, for lunch, uh, you know, buy good whole grain bread uh, and have it with, you know, some kind of nut butter, peanut butter. Um, that's a very healthy alternative. Um, for dinner, you know, there are huge numbers of, you know, you can buy pounded um, chicken fillets. They take about, oh, less than five minutes to cook, you know. Throw them in the pan with some olive oil, maybe some garlic, some uh, fresh herbs or dried herbs for flavor. Um, it, it's just, it's not hard to eat nutritious foods all the time. And as you say, um, 
now that we're lining up in COVID, um, it may be uh, quicker actually to cook at home. Shop once a week and cook at home. And I like that because it, 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 in many cases, it definitely is. You have to see the line that I chose not to wait in uh, yesterday. <laughs> I just won't name the name of the restaurant. But um, with, with that being said, you know, um, and thank you so much for giving those suggestions. I, uh, Judith, before we go, if someone wanted to learn more, I mean, where would you, or connect with you, where would you send them? Um, well, I, I certainly, you know, I don't just want to tout my own book, but in terms of the, the, this is this area of science known as the developmental origins of health and disease, which is now a really reputable area of science with thousands and thousands of studies. So if you're interested in, in getting a, a more detailed scientific approach, uh, I would, I, you know, search for developmental origins of health and disease. DOHAD is the, the acronym. Um, you know, my book, I, I very deliberately, because I discovered, uh, once I discovered David Barker, I also discovered that n nobody knew about this. Uh, so I really devoted a lot of effort to trying to encapsulate uh, a, you know, a lot uh, of, of what went on in this whole area of Dohad uh, for the last 40 years or so on. So that's, it's a very good primer. Um, you are what your grandparents ate. Um, you know, but once, once, if you're interested in pursuing Dohad, there are thousands and thousands of studies and it can keep you busy for a long time. Excellent. And, and Dohead, once again, stands for? Developmental Origins of Health and Disease. Awesome. So good stuff. And, and also just to make sure, just like Judith said, and you need to read her book. So you are what your grandparents ate. Um, what you need to know about nutrition, experience, epigenetics, and the origins of chronic disease. Well, before we leave, I got two more questions, Judith, and it goes like this. First one is, when life gets tough and you start getting so much stuff thrown at you that you may want to quit, how do you keep going? Meaning you. Well, um, I go out for a walk. Uh, I, I now, um, my, my husband and I do daily walks through the neighborhood and we meet many of our neighbors <laughs> while we're doing it. Uh, it's interesting how, uh, you know, it's one of the COVID things. Um, I, I tend, uh, we had a, 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 a lonely uh, Christmas holiday because we were being uh, socially distant. Uh, and, uh, but we ended up having a ritual where we lit a fire in the fireplace, um, brought blankets down, stretched out on the Chesterfields and spent the afternoons reading. And it was, really lovely. It was very different from how we usually spend a, a holiday, but we, we really enjoyed it and we found it very restorative. Um, I'm very interested in the whole area of forest bathing, which I don't know much about, but Japanese forest bathing, I know I, I, I stumbled on it through epigenetics and they have found it's like it's like some mindfulness meditation and so on that it very positively affects 
uh, gene expression. Uh, so certainly getting out for a walk in nature, smelling the flowers. We don't have any flowers right at the moment here. <laughs> no, but, uh, but you know, that, that kind of thing. And, and um, you know, if, if you can't, there's always a silver lining. It's like, you know, the, the, the holiday spent reading in front of the fire. It, 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 it's not how we normally would have spent a holiday, but it was very restorative. And uh, we both really enjoyed it. So what can I say? That's awesome. I love it. I, I love it. Uh, great advice. So last question. Do you have a teacher in your past who made a difference in your life? If so, who was it? And what would you say if given the chance to say thank you? I sure do. And that was uh, Mr. Brent Scully, who was my grade 11 English teacher at Fort William Collegiate Institute. And he, I have a very analytical mind. I was always a great reader. I loved reading and reading stories and, and you know, uh, going to the library and getting books. Um, the, the library was a very important part of my life too when I was growing up. But Mr. Scully was the first person to really show me that you could approach literature and analyze it like a mathematical equation to try and figure out what the author did to look at structure, to... Uh, follow progression, character development, and all of that. And it just really captured my interest. And uh, so I did my uh, undergraduate degree in English literature <clears throat> and became a writer. <laughs> and I, and I, I attribute uh, that to uh, Mr. Scully. So thank, thank you, Mr. Scully. That's awesome. I love it. I love it. Major impact, major impact. Good stuff. Well, well, Judith, thank you so much for talking with me today. Your book, You Are What Your Grandparents Ate, What You Need to Know About Nutrition, Experience, Epigenetics, and the Origins of Chronic Disease is an amazing work that we all should be reading and understanding and using to make changes in our lifestyles. Um, wishing the best in all that you do. Thank you for having me. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is excited to be a member of Voice Ed Radio. Voice Ed Radio. Your voice is right here. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators, podcasts by educators. The opinions expressed on Teaching Learning Leading K-12 are those of the guests and hosts. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is intended to share ideas, advice, and suggestions for classroom teachers and school administrators. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is produced for educational purposes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll share it with your friends.